Alexis Dion. And I'm Chelsea. And we're the co-hosts of High Priority, a podcast where we ask industry experts the tough questions about the past, present, and future of the cannabis industry. All right, we are back in full effect. Chelsea, I gotta let you know that I tried some new edibles. <laughs> Ooh, do tell. <laughs> so, you know, Mattia, we just signed on a new client, Wild. Um, they are mm, basically yes. the number one selling edibles company in the US right now. And I've never- I'm so excited. I know, right? I've never had their edibles, so I was able to try their Huckleberry Yum. Edibles that were delicious. Um, they were 10 milligrams each of THC, but suggested yeah. serving size was half. And so I listened. <laughs> Smart girl. <laughs> to that suggestion, I took half and I was a very happy girl. <laughs> are the Huckleberry ones, are they like the hybrid ones? I've had a few of them, but I can't remember what the profile is. Yes, I believe they were hybrid. Don't quote me on that, but I believe they were. Mm -hmm. um, yes, it was uh, THC and CBD uh, also. And they were just, it was like the perfect high. Like, you know, you weren't too in the clouds, but you also like, you still felt something like a nice little buzz. That's where I was yeah. with that. So I'm a fan. Well, I love that for you. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. The next time you buy some wild, I highly recommend the peach ones. I think Ooh. they're CBD heavy, but oh my God, it feels like you're floating. It's like the most, like, it's like such a nice body high. Oh my God. And obviously okay. peach gummies are always yummy. So yes, thank you. For next time. And I'm, I'm like, I feel like I have to get all my suggestions from you because I feel like you're so more advanced than me when it comes to trying uh, <laughs> cannabis products so just you just let me know what else is out there i'm i just like good tasting things also because i have very sensitive lungs so i'm kind of only mm -hmm. i'm kind of stuck with edibles but i will most definitely let you know thank you i appreciate it um and yeah so who do we have coming on today i think we have a lady by the name of courtney davis from marijuana matters we do also um, an organization that Mattia recently started working with. Um, Marijuana Matters is a nonprofit based out of DC that was actually founded by Khadija Triple. Um, if you work in the cannabis industry, she is a very big figure. Um, and yeah, this came out of um, her time at Harvard Kennedy School, which is like no big deal. <laughs> And it really tries to bridge like the public private partnerships to create, um, you know, opportunities for people of color within the cannabis industry and really try to rectify the injustices done by the war on drugs. Whew, that was a lot. It was a mouthful. Mm -hmm. And also, like, I know her background is pretty interesting. She used to work on legislation that was really focused on um, veterans affairs and the agricultural industry and now she's in cannabis. So it's kind of cool to like talk to someone who didn't necessarily have that, you know, very strong advanced background in cannabis, but still was able to come to this world, make an impact and really, you know, take things to another level. Yeah, it's really interesting to see what people do, you know, always after their time on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. But I really don't think we see a lot of people go into cannabis. And I think it's so important that 
people with that kind of political experience um, and people of color mm -hmm. um, enter at the advocacy space in this capacity because it really is so much more impactful when you know how the laws are made and you can push it through hopefully more successfully that way. I agree. Um, and I'm really interested to talk to her about the social equity toolkit that her and the rest of her team at Marijuana Matters created to basically help others really kind of bring people into the fold when it comes to setting up social equity programs. Um, I feel like, especially for MSOs, those multi-state operators, for those who are unfamiliar with the term MSO, um, those big companies who may not have a robust social equity program in place, this toolkit basically lays the groundwork on what you should do um, and, and how you yeah, should go about doing they, it. They definitely did a lot of research to figure out what are the access points, you know, what is the framework that we should be targeting, what this social equity ecosystem looks like. And anyone who wants to look at this document can download it, download it on um, marijuanamatters.org. So I think one of the most interesting parts that they bring up is um, outcomes versus opportunities. I think a lot of MSOs and a lot of brands talk about, oh, like we're creating all of these great opportunities for people of color to enter, mm -hmm. but Marijuana Matters comes in as like, actually, you need to, yes, do that. That's like the first step, but also focus on the outcomes, right? That's getting them across the finish line. The opportunities are just like getting them to the race. Mm -hmm. um, and as this industry matures, I think more consumers, advocates, really industry stakeholders will be interested to see what these actual outcomes look like and how they're tracked. Yes, I love that. And I really appreciate that specifically Marijuana Matters is focused on three particular pillars of of that basically kind of like wraps all of what we're going to talk about with Courtney into, you know, in one kind of like fold. Um, they're focused on education, advocacy, and entrepreneurship. Um, and all three of those points, I think we're going to touch on our interview with Courtney. So let us not take any more time. Let's go ahead and jump in and let's talk to Courtney Davis from Marijuana Matters. Welcome, Courtney. So as someone who's worked on Capitol Hill for nearly a decade in Senator Michael Bennett's office, what drew you to eventually switch gears and join Marijuana Matters? Hi, ladies. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and great question. Um, I did spend almost 10 years working on Capitol Hill with Senator Michael Bennett's office, and I, I really enjoyed my time there. Um, I started at in the second year of Obama administration, and I just remember just the sheer excitement and the joy of being in a place where you're able to create policies, meet stakeholders. Um, I was just learning all of the time. And uh, the Hill has a way of letting you know when your time has come, when you know it chews you up and spits you out, when it's time for you to move on. And over the past decade, things have gotten to be a little bit more challenging, um, especially in the Senate, dealing with folks in the administration. And a lot of the issues that I was working on, um, we were doing the same things over and over again. And 
a lot of the bills that I was working on weren't getting passed. And I really appreciated how when I would get a chance to take these meetings with folks that were working on interesting topics, I was like, I'm going to put a pin in that because I would like to learn more about this at some point. And maybe when I'm ready to leave the Hill, this is something that I could work on. And, um, you know, Colorado had legalized cannabis some time ago and Congress just wasn't really getting involved in any of the policies surrounding that and including social equity. And I was starting to figure out what I wanted to do. And that was really interesting to me. And so one of my former coworkers had started at LinkedIn and he gave us all LinkedIn premium. And he said, do me a favor, just try hard to network on LinkedIn for 30 days and let me know what happens. And so I didn't want to leave DC. I knew I wanted to work in cannabis policy. And so I typed in marijuana, cannabis, all of the um, qualifiers that you would uh, think to use to find a job in cannabis. And I typed in DC as my search and marijuana matters came up among a couple of other things. And I, um, reached out to Khadija, who was the founder, and we had coffee and she, this was maybe 2019, and she told me, um, she's like, there is a place for you. We need women um, in cannabis policy. And she's like, I don't have any money right now, but eventually I will, and I'm gonna come find you. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is, you know, this is interesting. And I actually had a job offer with an ag company. Um, and I remember coming, going home for Christmas break and I was telling my mom, like, yeah, they offered me, you know, this amount of money. And she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and then I'm like, but I have Khadijah. And she told me that, you know, she's <laughs> and my mom was just looking at me like, are you serious right now? You're going to turn down a job offer for something that you may not, that may not even manifest. Um, but I, by after 10 years on the Hill, I knew that I didn't want to work on crop insurance or checkoffs. I was done with that type of ag policy. And I just thought, you know, if I don't take a chance now, um, when is a, there's no better time like the present. So I took a chance and I have been so pleased um, working with for Marijuana Matters and with Khadijah. Wow, that's an incredible story. And it's so great that I think you saw her vision back then when, you know, it was still bubbling up. So that's wonderful. And I know you talked about your work on agriculture bills and um, in previous uh, interviews, you've talked about, you know, you've worked on policies related to veterans affairs and the agriculture industry. So how did those experiences shape your views on cannabis reform and advocacy? Um there's a lot of overlap and a nexus between agriculture, um, veterans affairs and cannabis. Um, I remember I was working on a veterans bill for PTSDs and there was like this farm that uh, the USDA was allowing veterans to go and farm as, as one of the ways for them to um, you know, deal with their post-traumatic stress issues. Wow. And um, there was just, I, I was always meeting with the veterans that were looking for another way to deal with issues that were brought to them through their time in the military. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the direct link between opioids, over-prescribing of opioids and, and veterans asking for 
alternative forms of, of pain management like uh, cannabis, you know, I, I really, I felt bad that there wasn't anything that I can do about it. I knew that, you know, my boss probably wasn't willing to create a bill on that. And, and just given the dynamics of the Senate, um, I knew that that wasn't something that would probably happen, but just being able to hear those stories and also, you know, from, from a policy standpoint, um, understanding the, the makeup of the Senate, what members priorities are, how to reach staff members, um, and just having that institutional knowledge has really prepared me for a lot of the conversations that we've had on some of the state bills and, and um, local offices that we've worked with. And, and even last year, I got a chance to, to do some Zoom Hill meetings, which was my first time being back on the Hill. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was kind of fun too, just being able to make sure, you know, I, I remember taking those meetings and I remember knowing what was important for me to hear and the questions that people were asking me that would make sure that I was going to be accountable and that my boss was going to be held accountable. And so that definitely has helped me in my current role. Yeah, that's great insight. And I love hearing the fact that you were able to transfer your skills from a completely different industry over to cannabis, because I think a lot of people um, are interested in joining this industry, but they're just not sure if whatever industry they're coming from will make sense or um, if it'll even work out because they they may have like a completely different subset of skills or, or whatnot. So I'm glad like you're telling your story that yes, it is possible to switch from agriculture, veteran affairs, tech, etc., cetera, mm-hmm. and come mm-hmm. over to the cannabis world. So thanks for sharing that. And it's that. an asset. Yeah, exactly. Um, Moving on. So how did Marijuana Matters land on the three key pillars, education, advocacy and entrepreneurship? And how are these pillars reflected in the organization's programming and policy proposals? Um, So if you if you look at how policies are made or how how change um, comes about, you know, our pillars are really um, from the, it, it really stems from how change comes about. Um, it's not specific to an industry, but and not exclusive to cannabis, but advocacy, advocacy and education are synonymous with policy making. Um, and when I worked on the Hill, we made better policies when folks showed up to educate us. And um, when they came and advocated for things based on their lived experiences. And so the pillars are, are a direct reflection of, of the change that we would like to see as this cannabis industry is, is emerging um, and continuing to evolve every day. And then are the entrepreneurship pillar, um, you know, it just has to deal with the opportunities, the endless amount of opportunities that this new industry, which is one of the fastest growing industries in the states, in the country, um, how do we help prepare folks for these opportunities? And so, you know, education also includes re-education. And so we're helping those individuals um, that are living in communities where cannabis is going to become a uh, legal, and we want to help them learn relearn what they need to know um, in order to create equity and to create jobs, because that's essentially what marijuana managers is about is repairing the harms from the war on drugs. And how do we, how do we reinvest um, into our communities that have been uh, 
disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. So that is that is um, kind of how we landed on those three pillars. And the second part of that, how it's reflected in our programming and policy proposals is that we have, um, you know, our toolkit, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit later, but that was one of our first um, programs, if you will. Um, it was a labor of love between Khadijah and myself and a number of other um, contributors where we were really trying to give guiding principles on social equity in the cannabis industry. It became a buzz phrase, you know, a few years ago. And pr prior to that, when states like Colorado and Washington and Oregon were legalizing, there was no conversation of this. And so through our programs, we want to make sure that we are always putting social equity as the cornerstone of the legalized industry, making our recommendations for that. And so part of our, you know, the toolkit gives you the guiding principles for that. Um, and also, you know, we highlight some of the policy proposals that we've seen that we think are a step in the right direction. But there are a number of other programs that we provide, uh, like trainings to dispensary owners, and we can talk about anything that folks need a better understanding on, like diversifying the supply chain, um, or we have ran trainings on for community members on how they can advocate for specific bills. You know, how do you create your testimony um, when there's a public hearing, you know, making sure that your voices are heard, even helping folks to find the right phone numbers and emails uh, to reach people um, is something that we're excited to help uh, folks to understand. Um, so that's kind of a little bit about some of the work that we do and how it relates to our pillars. I love that. Uh, so about, yeah, so about those uh, trainings, are those open to the public? Anyone can access it. They just have to reach out to your team. Yeah. So we have um, a number of trainings that are requested through different um, companies that uh, we work with. And so those trainings are more specific to their team. You know, do they need a briefing, a background, a, a backgrounder on the history of the war on drugs? Um, are they looking for information for their procurement team? Do they need to know how to how to buy, um, how to locate more diverse buyers mm -hmm. uh, and products? And we also have some trainings that are open to the public. You know, we last year was a little bit of a challenge as most folks were planning in-person events and then pivot to, um, you know, well, I guess the last two years, really, because 2021, we already knew what the story was. Um, but we were able to have um, came up with a calendar of events that were public facing. And um, we're planning on doing the same this year. We also are working on um, some meet and greets here in the D.C. area that we're going to host quarterly. Um, where we're going to bring folks together, you know, entrepreneurs, folks from the legacy industry, folks that represent um, public institutions, as well as um, industry leaders to just do a number of things like networking, finding ways to, you know, continue to meet one another um, so that we can um, encourage some collaborations. But yes, the, the trainings that we have are public um, and they'll be available on our website once we have our calendar up. 
Awesome. So much to look forward to. Um, And you touched on that social equity toolkit in your last answer, and it's such a comprehensive and instructive resource that is available to the public. Um, I was just wondering, while you and Khadija were developing and drafting this, were there any glaring industry incidents or behaviors that really compelled the two of you to get this started? There were some. There were some there were some bad actors, um, in particular individuals that had a that would be considered a social equity applicant in the state that was creating a program um, being taken advantage of by a um, funder or a larger organization business that needed them on their application. And so they're signing Mm -hmm. over, you know, we're looking at these contracts and people are signing over a majority of their business mm. to compete or signing over a majority of their business for X amount of dollars. And so we were wanting to help folks in the industry understand how they can support social equity and how they can, you know, put people before profits as this is an industry that was built on the backs of folks that are now incarcerated or recently have mm. been um, released. And so we, you know, we did see some bad activity, but we also just saw a lack of um, a lack of policies. I mean, we, we weren't seeing any policies that were protecting communities and that were helping um, to reverse these harms. And so that was the impetus is more of what we weren't seeing mm-hmm. um, versus some of the things that we were seeing. And there is no perfect social equity program, even though we have right. some listed in our um toolkit you know it's a it's a working document and until folks are you know serious about investing in their data and and key performance indicators i think that's when we'll really get to see some of the results of these policies but until then you know we're just going to continue to make recommendations based on what we're seeing what we're not seeing and you know for anyone that's interested in working in the cannabis industry they should know that this is the long game there is no perfect bill. There is no perfect MSO relationship. These are just all um, ideas that folks have. And then we will see if they, how they're going to come to fruition. How many owners, you know, of minority owners do we have at the end of this program? How many folks have we helped? As long as we're continuing to measure that, you know, that's how policies are created. And we need to make sure that those type of procedures are, um, and placeholders are, are implemented into, are built into the policies that we're passing. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> oh, that's very helpful. Yes, like, I, I was just thinking as you were talking, like, I feel like now that New York is in the crux of, like, legislation and making sure everything is ironed out for adult use, they need to be looking at the social equity toolkit. <laughs> making sure yes. that like they're checking off the boxes, you know? <laughs> no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Does Tremaine Wright have your document? I don't know, but maybe after <laughs> this, I'm just going to slide it. I'm going to slide in her inbox and see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just an should. FYI. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, because we recently had her on the show and mm-hmm. she I is... did. I, I, I listened to that one. I was oh, like, wow. Okay. Yeah. She seemed very receptive and open to ideas. So it's a good time to just remind her that this yes. is out there. Exactly. And, and if you can't get in contact with her, we will definitely for you. <laughs> I heard that you know how to get a hold of her. <laughs> I do. I am an excellent stalker. So, <laughs> no, Alexis is a PR professional. Yes. She's very yeah. good at her job. Thanks, Chelsea. Um, Well, sticking to the social equity toolkit, um, we know that it highlights the collateral consequences of cannabis prohibition, including education gaps, evictions, felony disenfranchisement, and employment restrictions. Do you believe that there are other consequences that are often overlooked and should probably be urgently addressed? Uh, Yes. There are hundreds of collateral consequences. And this is something that I learned when I started working for Marijuana Matters because I didn't, I don't have a criminal justice background. And so I was a little unfamiliar with um, collateral consequences. But when I heard the phrase, I was just like, everyone needs to know about these. And there are, there are over hundreds of them. And unfortunately, a lot of them are at state and local levels. Like you, you can see things like the inability to get a driver's license. I mean, we know of most of the big ones, like checking, you know, if you have a felony, not being able to vote and, and getting the box and those initiatives. But there are so many other smaller um, consequences that individuals can face. And these are folks that may not have even spent any time um, having been incarcerated, they may have just been arrested. And so, you know, there's issues with public housing or issues with um, federal student loans, being able to get some of those grants. Um, if you mm-hmm. have had a cannabis related offense or drug related offense, which is, you know, over half of the folks that are incarcerated have some sort of, you know, drug related uh, charge. And so one of the things that we like to do is just highlight some of those collateral consequences and just even get folks to thinking about them because, you know, we talk a lot about expungement and that's very important and people need to know why these records should be expunged. But we could also work on rolling back some of these laws that are continuing to damage communities and individuals by being punitive after someone has already served their time. Yeah, we um, spoke to Miko Lincoln, who um, basically couldn't get an occupational license to help facilitate drug rehabilitations because he had a previous drug charge. I mean, the irony is ridiculous, but yeah. And I also didn't even think about like the grants for student loans. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. little it's not it's not little, but it's just things that you wouldn't really necessarily think about. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. Yeah. And um. Courtney, you brought this up earlier about have um, the importance of building social equity programs around lived experiences, and that is um, one of the guiding principles in the toolkit. So why is this especially important, and are there any existing programs that have successfully accomplished this in some way? Um, yeah, this is important because it's a way to ensure that the population that you're creating policies and programs for are actually benefiting in a way that they've requested. And so if you're, you know, we've all seen um, pictures of folks in the boardroom of nonprofits that are making decisions about 
poor or lower income minority communities, um, you, you kind of have to make sure that some of the stakeholders, which should include folks from those communities and, and that have had those experiences are part of those conversations when it is affecting their lifestyles. And so that's essentially what we mean when we talk about creating policies around center lived experiences and, and how are, you know, and, and similar to the collateral consequences example, you wouldn't know that collateral, how collateral consequences can impact your education or higher education, unless you had someone that was around when the decisions were being made on a person's education. And so that's, that's one example of just, you know, diversifying your leadership and being inclusive when you think about creating policies, um, even if it's, you know, you're creating a DEI policy at your, at your place of business, um, do you really know what persons of color or folks from the LGBTQIA community, what they're looking for, what are their asks? Make sure you bring them to the table when you're creating these policies and programs so that they could be based on their lived experiences. And that goes across like every industry, right? Like how many times every industry. <laughs> have we, you know, seen something crazy, like from the fashion industry or the tech industry, we're just like, wow, you must have not had any person of color in the room, any queer people in the room, because otherwise this probably wouldn't have happened. So absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it, it's a lot of things that we're asking for in the cannabis industry is relevant to a lot of other industries. So that's a really good point that you brought up. This is, you know, it's it's specific to the war on drugs, but it is very, very, um, it can cross in a lot of different sectors. Definitely. Um, and just to go further into the toolkit, I know it goes in depth about expanding the social equity ecosystem, which includes the community, public institutions, and the public sector. During your time at Marijuana Matters, have you seen any public-private partnerships that you've been, um, that have been particularly impactful? And what do you think drove its success? Yeah, there, there's one that's coming to mind because this is something that I wish that we had done. Um, but, you know, I went to an HBCU and Clark Atlanta, and I've always wanted to get folks involved in, and in not just the students, but leadership, um, mm -hmm. allowing them the opportunity to learn about a career in cannabis. I know I think we talk a lot about licenses for dispensaries and cultivation and processing, but there are so many more opportunities, including a policy position similar to what I had. And so, the U.S. Cannabis Council partnered with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, and they are offering um, interns to members of the U.S. Cannabis Council. And Tahir Johnson, who's one of our advisory board members, Love was to able to, yes, yes, was able. To, and I was a little when I, when I saw it, I was like, damn, <laughs> that's what I I'm like, that's what I wanted to do. But we didn't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> That's real. That's also another thing we need to talk more yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, he also hinted at it when we uh, recorded with him. It was, I don't think it was in the episode, but he was like, this is dropping mm -hmm. very soon. Okay, so, yes. Yeah, we're really excited that it actually launched. Yes, it launched and, you know, uh, companies like Cureleaf, Columbia Care, they have interns. 
And I'm familiar with the CBCF internship program because that's how a lot of um, Black students get to come to D.C. and intern on Capitol Hill. And that's one of the ways that you can get a job in an office. And so that's an example of a public-private partnership. I guess maybe that's private to private, but it's an example of a, a partnership that will help to create the pipeline and increase the ecosystem. Because again, we're not talking about just helping folks get licenses. We're talking about creating career paths. And by having a, a paid internship, because these folks are getting paid, the CBCF does a great job of fundraising. They're being able to um, provide the, you know, provide a comfortable lifestyle for them while they're in DC learning. They'll be able to network and do all the things that you need um, in order to have a career in policy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is an example of something that is outside of the box that I just really loved. And I'm going to say it again. I wish that we, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm going to find a way to do something with HBS. But um, yeah, you know, there, there are just a number of things that we should be thinking about that are outside of those, you know, land trust um, opportunities of folks who are interested in environmental sustainability. It's just, there are, the opportunities are endless for these type of partnerships. And I'm really excited to see more of them popping up. I love that. I mean, and also you guys are really close to Howard University, Hampton, like all these other, you know, big HBCU. So I'm sure there'll probably be another similar partnership in the pipeline. Yes. And speaking of public policy, there are a number of cannabis reform bills that could be passed in Congress this year. I mean, who knows? They say that every year. But um, (laughs) some of these bills include Safe Banking, the MORE Act, and the recently introduced States Reform Act. So from your own policy perspective, which of these bills could make the greatest impact in terms of equity and inclusion? Um... That's a really good question because when you're making policies, there's always opportunity for um, amendments and for changes. And one of the things that I appreciated from um, Senator Schumer and our leader Schumer and Senator Booker had asked for public comments on their bill, which mm-hmm. the acronym, the CAOA, I believe, mm-hmm. um, And I really appreciate that because I'm like, this is how you get a good first draft. I mean, when you're when you work on the Hill, you automatically do your due diligence when you're looking to introduce a bill. You reach out to stakeholders and you um, see what they want in the bill, what they don't want. And let's be real, some people are even writing bills for members. So I'm glad that they were able to do that with the um, because a lot of the advocates similar to Minorities for Medical Marijuana, MCBA, including our organization, had not been a part of the conversations with the MORE Act and with um, Safe Banking, the state's bill. And so I'm excited about the opportunity to uh, make some of these bills a little bit more inclusive and beef up their social equity programs. In terms of me putting on my like critical thinking had and what we could actually get done this year. Um, I would say probably safe banking, because if you have been 
following anything that's happening in the Beltway. We couldn't get the infrastructure bill done. We couldn't get voting rights. And some of these more comprehensive cannabis bills are just not a priority for a member of Congress from Nebraska or Missouri or whatever. Like, I just don't think that, not that we shouldn't apply pressure. There are more than one ways to apply pressure, you know, including from like uh, the C4 side of, you know, running ads in states and whatnot. But I do think that there is a chance for safe banking to pass this year. And one of the amendments that we have to safe banking, what we would like to see is language to help incorporate CDFIs and black owned banks to make sure that they're able to participate in um, accessing some of these clients that are looking for a safe harbor for their money um, in a legal state. And so I would, you know, the more acts I, um, we supported a couple of years ago, there was some problematic language that was included in the end that would have prohibited individual, it would have been a signal to um, investors and to businesses that if you have someone that's a, on your um, application that have had a felony cannabis related charge that they may not be approved. And so that was, you know, an example of something that is not repairing the harm from the war on drugs. And so when we got to the final hour of that bill, we weren't able to remove that portion of the language. And so again, just wanting to make sure that these organizations and stakeholders have a seat at the table during the drafting process is really important mm-hmm. um, because sometimes you do get to the end of a bill making process in, in a split Congress similar to what we have now, and you don't have time to blow it up and make all of these changes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, we have some pretty general things that we support, but in terms of which bill, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't say, which bill I think is going to be the best because I'm hoping for changes in all of them. But I would say safe banking, you know, especially with this being um, Representative Perlmutter's last hurrah. This is his baby. Um, He's going to fight like hell to get it passed this year. I have no idea how Mitch McConnell is going to try to stop it, but I'm sure he will. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Sending the best of vibes to Representative Pullmutter then. (laughs) (laughs) And I know our listeners can't see, but Chelsea was rolling her eyes very hard, just FYI. (laughs) (laughs) Not at Um, anything Courtney was saying, just the bureaucracy of it all. Totally understand. Lack of things accomplished. Yeah. Every year it's always something. Um, um, In the private sector, we're seeing more MSOs and established brands launch social equity programs and incubators. While this is a step in the right direction, Marijuana Matters is focused on pushing industry stakeholders to create consequential outcomes. How can companies set impact goals that are both meaningful and attainable? Um, That's a good question. Um, I think Starting from a point of um, transparency and and honesty, I think a lot of advocates and community members are looking for MSOs to be honest about what they are willing to 
um, provide to social equity programs. And so I like to use the expression we're talking about the cannabis industry that a lot of companies are building the plane while they're flying it. And so that goes for Mm -hmm. their own profits and margins and losses and also for their social equity programs. We do think that these should be created at the same time. Um, Mm. You should, like all cannabis cannabis companies should have a social equity or DEI program. But I do think that if you can identify something that you're, you know, passionate about, I mentioned sustainability earlier. um, And if that's your goal, and that's that's how you're going to show up in social equity for this industry, then set your target in a way that you can find individuals that that you can partner with that would be able to, um, what's the word I'm looking, they would be able to benefit from either funding or an incubator program. Um, you know, if you have folks that are botanists or they're interested in learning how to grow cannabis or, you know, you're partnering with an HBCU that has an agriculture program, I think there's just, you know, I keep saying this to like expand the ecosystem, but folks are sometimes thinking too small in terms of what they're able to do with social equity. And another thing, you know, with our going back to our center lived experiences is, you know, when you before you move into a community, get to know some of the folks that are there and find out what is important to them. If Mm -hmm. you're you know, a Cresco and you're in and you're in the middle of Chicago in a neighborhood, there might be a library that they need or they may need, you know, a steady stream of income for roads that um, are consistently the gravel is crumbling. Um, I think there are just ways that people should start to think a little bit more in, out in terms of ways that they can help mm-hmm. outside of like, I'm going to give, you know, I'm going to help someone get a license for a dispensary when that's really not um, the only way that they can help. I feel like I'm not answering the question. No, no, you are. You (laughs) No, that makes a lot of sense. You're saying like step outside the box a little bit, like expand your horizons. Let's not just focus on, like you said, getting this two or three people, some dispensary licenses. Like what else can we do to impact that neighborhood, that community? Yeah. And just bringing all applicable skills to the table, right? Like those MSOs have so much money, so many resources. There's there's plenty of things they can help out with. Exactly. Yeah. On the data, I mean, if you're truly, um, you know, I don't have a business background, but I know that when businesses are looking to make their profit, they have key performance indicators. They have their data mm-hmm. that they're investing in. Um you should do the same for your social equity program so that you can know if you're actually meeting your goals. If your goals are to, you know, help five young botanists learn how to grow something, you know, and, and have a place for them in the industry in the end, you know, are you creating that pipeline? Are you following them? What are your KPIs to make sure that you're able to measure that for your business, just as you would for your profits and revenues. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now, just on kind of like the exterior a little bit, how can other industry stakeholders hold these MSOs and established brands accountable for their commitments? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, You know, you've got to be persistent 
they have to be a part of the equation. Um, you know, there, I remember a while ago when I worked um, for, uh, when I was in the state working for Senator Bennett, I would go to all these meetings um, when we would want to make transportation changes. And the folks that were there and active, I mean, they were asking the right questions. Um, and so it, 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 you have to be, the information should be coming to community members, but community members need to know what's happening and they need to be involved um, mm -hmm. citizens in a sense. Um, and understand the power of civic engagement. I think that that is one of the best ways that folks are able to create change is just by being present and demanding things, you know, being a part of it. This is a this is a part of a process. Um, the way that laws are made, public institutions, they call it the machine, whatever you want to call it. This is this is all involved in, you know, big business. You have to participate actively if you um, want to hold folks uh, hold them accountable. Um, and that is one of the things that Marijuana Matters hopes to help people learn how to do and uh, giving them information on public hearings and, and all of that, keeping folks abreast of what's happening in their neck of the woods. Um, we're a part of the equation as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just from scrolling through your Instagram, I learned a lot about like the nuances of the industry and new ways to get involved. So um, you guys are an incredible resource as well. Yeah, we want to do some fun stuff this year. We're going to, you know, do some training and classes on CBD and how folks can find their favorite strain and why they like certain strains. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited about that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> nice. for sure. And for the smaller companies that are just getting started or they may not have the resources to launch a full-scale social equity program, but they want to be dedicated allies within the industry, what can that look like? I think for those companies, partnerships are really important. Um, mm -hmm. You don't have to try and host an expungement clinic when there are a number of organizations like M4MM and Marijuana Matters that... Um, are happy to, we have the resources, um, we have the contacts, we're happy to partner with these companies um, that may not have the capacity to build out an entire massive social equity program. And so I, I would say plug into folks in the community that are already doing the work and find ways to support, whether that's financing, um, volunteers, there are a lot of companies that help um, provide pro bono services, uh, law firms, PR firms. Um, mm -hmm. If you, if that's the way that you could show up, I mean, that's, that still counts. I just think you have to be making an effort. Right. And for, I guess, industry stakeholders that view themselves as allies and are doing the work, are there any specific initiatives or actions that you would want them to, um, you know, double down on? Um. I mean, I think that a lot of the stuff that we that we you know did talk about earlier, mm -hmm. you know, we had a series earlier this year on um, allies or last year that we had um, interviewed a couple of individuals in the ally community, and one of the things that I that came from that conversation that I really that stuck with me was like youth education mm -hmm. and. 
you know, again, not specific to the cannabis industry, but, you know, when we think about the way that folks create biases um, and how we need to unlearn things, we always think about, oh, you know, everyone is born innocent. And then these are learned behaviors. And so I think if we could help to teach folks um, at an earlier age, you know, I'm not advocating for teaching in children how to uh, consume or whatever, but I, you know, as a, <laughs> I'm like, this yeah, you definitely are, have to say that. <laughs> we're not rolling joints today. Yeah, in right. this cancel generation we have. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to dare folks coming after me. But, uh, you know, I had a baby nine months ago and this is an industry that, that pays my bills. Um, and I do think that there is value in letting um, the youth know at an appropriate age what some of these issues are with the systemic racism that we had in this country within public institutions and why we're advocating for social equity. A big part of what we're doing now is letting people know why we're advocating for this. Some people say, oh, that was 40 years ago, or they don't know anyone that's been incarcerated. They don't understand the collateral consequences. But if these, you know, if we spent as much time teaching children about other things as we did about social equity and why this is important, I think we would, wouldn't have to spend um, nearly as much time talking to adults about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a great point because, I mean, given, you know, how the country is going, some states, <clears throat> Florida, uh, you know, they're trying <laughs> to off. not like a race, but, you know, they're really trying to glaze over a lot of the contextual um, you know, background as to like why certain systemic issues are prevalent. And so I think beating that drum is really important, especially in cannabis. Definitely, for sure. And, you know, us as future thinkers, like we just love thinking forward and and wanting to, you know, predict what the future will look like for this industry. What do you hope the cannabis industry will look like in the next two to five years? And what do business and lawmakers have to prioritize now in order to get there? Um, I hope that in a couple of years, we have so many minority business owners that are killing it, that that are working on the science behind the plant, that are participating in health studies, health impact assessments. I hope that there are you know, I think the way that we get there is that we have to prioritize funding tax dollars um, or reallocation of funds that have normally gone to places or departments that were before cannabis was legal. I'll just say that. Um, and I think that, you know, the investment absolutely has to be there. I would love to see that there is no one in prison for a cannabis-related offense mm-hmm. um, in federal or state prisons or in jail. And yeah, lots and lots of black and brown people that know about cannabis that aren't that are destigmatized, have destigmatized their minds from it and are ready to learn about the health benefits um, that can really help their community. Yes. I love that you said like destigmatize because every other day I you know, encounter someone who still has these very like antiquated notions about cannabis um, or just 
pretty much ignorant about the topic. So I'm glad mm-hmm. you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I literally um, had a doctor's appointment yesterday and they were like, oh, where do you work? And I was like, oh, I work in cannabis marketing and PR. And they're like, oh, like, mm-hmm. and then, you know, they had talked about yeah. like, oh, like what supplements do you, t-? you know, like that whole thing. And I was like, oh, but, you know, I also smoke weed every now and then. They're like, oh, well, <laughs> that's a surprise. I'm like, can we not do this? Like, can you just treat me like a normal patient? <laughs> it's annoying. Uh, oh, my God. Have you had to encounter that? I'm sure you have. I have. I have. And I mean, even when some of my family members, because, you know, I post a lot about it and they're like, oh, this is cool. Do you do cannabis or do you do it? <laughs> I do I'm it. Like, How am I supposed to answer this? <laughs> <laughs> or do you answer it? Like, is it plead the fifth? <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, that is, that's another thing I'm, we had a panel last year in New Orleans at Black Canicon, and it was a panel yes. of faith leaders um, because we want to activate faith leaders around civil rights issues um, of cannabis legalization. And mm-hmm. that was, a, someone had a question. They're like, how do you talk? How do you even bridge the subject with clergy leaders or mm-hmm. a congregation? But it's almost like you just have to rip the bandaid off. I mean, you have to come prepared with your facts, but we all have to relearn what we were taught decades ago. That's the first step. And then just being unapologetic about an industry that, like I said, is paying your bills. It's legal. I get, you know, I'm paying taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm being responsible. I'm paying bills. I'm taking care of myself. You should do the same. <laughs> Right. And what, what about your own business? How about that? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> let's just start there. Yeah. yeah, let's start there and then we'll get nice at the end. <laughs> there you go. Well, that has concluded the serious part of our conversation. Now we're going to mosey on down to what we call I Got Five on it. Okay. And we're going to ask you some very hard hitting questions. Rapid fire. Mm. Are you ready? Okay. Indica or Sativa? I like hybrid and I like the entourage effect. Ooh. Very experienced answer. Right. Um, (laughs) Flower, edible, or concentrate? Okay, this one is hard, but (laughs) I'm following the science. And so I'm going to say concentrate. Mm, Okay. If you had to choose one slang term for cannabis to use for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Oh God, probably dank. <laughs> Ooh, I don't think we've That's heard that word yet. Yeah, like, I like the way it rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it's dank, but it's dank. I like it. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you could smoke with any celebrity, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Or dab concentrates with. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be Rihanna. Nice. I, she. I have never met this woman. One day I wish I will, but she, we would have fun. We'd laugh, we'd dance, we'd do makeup, we'd dress up. I mean, we would be in the island somewhere with good weather. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, now that she's like a national hero in Barbados, she can probably like take <laughs> you there, right? Right. Yeah. And just hang out on the beach in her, her native Barbados. Perfect. I love that. And Rihanna was also my answer too. So we are oh, connected. 
<laughs> Good to there. Yes. Love Rihanna. Uh, last question. If you could have your own special brand of weed, what would you name it and why? Um, I would name it Melrose, which is my daughter's name because Aww. I love her so much. <laughs> That's a beautiful yeah. name. Thank you. It it's gorgeous. I love it. Well, Courtney, you have been just a ray of sunshine. We just love talking to you and just getting your insights and hearing more about Marijuana Matters. But before you leave, we want to know where can our listeners find you and Marijuana Matters? Yes, please visit our website, marijuanamatters.org. You can also find us on IG, Marijuana Matters DC. And you can find us on Twitter, M2, which is our, our nickname, Marijuana Matters M2, M2 wow. underscore org. Um, so yeah, I know it's, it's a lot, but you'll find us and <laughs> we'll have some good stuff for you to, to follow along with. So please do. Yay. Thanks, Courtney. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks again for listening to High Priority. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to Antoine Dry, Donald Edwards, and Jim Pryor from Dirty Soap Entertainment for our intro music. To learn more about our show and parent company, Matteo Communications, head on over to our website at matteo.com. That's M-A-T-T-I-O.com. 